The Office of Special Counsel, which handles whistleblower and hatch act cases, is something of an enigma to many federal managers. The law firm Shaw, Bransford & Roth, which produces the weekly Fed Talk show here on Federal News Network, has organized what federal managers need to know better to handle OSC investigations. Here with the highlights, Shaw, Bransford Senior Attorney James Heelan. James, good to have you back. Thanks, Tom. It's good to be with you today. Let's start with where the Office of Special Counsel begins and the Merit Systems Protection Board ends, because that's a little bit of a mystery sometimes, too. If you compare it to uh, like a criminal prosecution, OSC is the prosecutor and the investigator for prohibited personnel practices within the federal government. Prohibited personnel practices are 14 specific kinds of things that Congress has said are impermissible in in federal employment. And so OSC does investigations into whether those um, occurred. And if so, they can bring prosecutions before the court analog of the Merit Systems Protection Board. So the MSPB makes decisions, they adjudicate, whereas the OSC investigates and can prosecute. Got it. And so what do agencies need to know then? Why is it so mysterious? It's been around for quite a long time. Well, the OSC is a smaller independent federal agency of about something over 100 employees, but less than 200. And they have a, a, you know, really incredible um, responsibility to police PPPs around the federal government, but they have limited resources. And so they sometimes come into federal agencies and with their limited resources, they don't do an excellent job of explaining the scope of their responsibilities and authorities to these federal agencies. And sometimes because OSC is so um, sporadic, you know, it seems in, in where they go to investigate, an agency may get an OSC investigation um, after many years of no encounters with OSC whatsoever. Um, you know, it's one day you're the uh, responsible citizen and the police show up on your door. Um, you may remember civics class from back in high school, but you don't remember the fine details. And so the nuances of OSC's authorities can be somewhat mysterious to someone who hasn't dealt with them in a very long time. And what sort of powers does OSC have? Can it subpoena documents? Can it subpoena people? Can it, I mean, what can they do? Like a... It can do all of those things. Uh, one of OSC's more unusual authorities uh, was codified by Congress back in 2017, allowing OSC to obtain any records or information relevant to its investigation from a federal agency, including information that agencies would otherwise consider attorney-client privileged are protected by delivered process privilege, et cetera, et cetera. Those common law privileges do not allow agencies to withhold information from OSC. OSC is also allowed to interview agency employees without the presence of agency counsel. So OSC can come into your federal agency and interview your employees without the agency employer being present or aware of the details of the investigation. And that's unusual, but Congress has given OSC that authority. What happens when they are, say, there to interview a union employee? Can, the, can that person bring their union representative in to help them? The individual being interviewed is allowed a representative of their choosing, but the agency is not allowed to be present. So if the employee says, I want my own union representative to be with me, or I have my own private attorney to be present with me during the OSC interview, that is permissible. 
But the agency employer, Office of General Counsel, cannot show up and listen in. We are speaking with James Heelan. He's senior attorney at the law firm Shaw, Bransford and Roth. So what should an agency do? Just open the doors and say, go at it? Is there any specific strategy maybe to, I don't know, mitigate the effects of the OSC coming in? Cooperate with OSC and be open. They do not want to be combative with OSC and create disputes um, that could blow up into something bigger. For example, there was an issue with the FHFA OIG a couple years ago that wound up before Congress because the IG was feuding with OSC over the OSC's ability to obtain information. That causes a whole extra level and set of problems that agencies don't need to deal with. But what they can do is educate their workforce, specifically their managers, about their rights and responsibilities. They can encourage managers to be open with OSC. They can encourage managers to get, for example, professional liability insurance so that they can get individual representation during an OSC interview. Because the key to a really thorough OSC analysis that addresses all of the high points that could be relevant to an investigation or potential prosecution are prepared witnesses. You want your employees to go in understanding what the prohibited personnel practices are, for example. You want witnesses to go in understanding how much information to give. And we generally recommend uh, giving complete answers, not withholding, not playing hide the ball with OSC. Because the more information you give them, the more timely OSC can complete an investigation, conduct a really thorough analysis. And they are rather fair. They do um, try to get it right. They're not trying to play gotcha with agencies. What sort of resources do they have? That is to say, it's a small agency, I think a couple of hundred people, and there's Mm -hmm. a really big federal bureaucracy spread out throughout the country. And so what are the chances of them being able to visit your agency and talk? Does this happen in person? And between the time someone makes a complaint, how long could it be till OSC comes around? We've seen OSC focusing their efforts in agencies where There are a couple of factors, including agencies where uh, OSC hasn't been for some time. You know, OSC may want to come around to that agency and remind them of the authority of OSC and the importance of abiding by the merit system principles. We also see OSC focusing its resources in agencies where they can make a big impact. You know, they may be more inclined to go to a larger federal agency, um, maybe with some you know, just to be casual, a juicier details of potentially higher ranking officials where an investigation and potential prosecution or settlement agreement could make a bigger impact, make a bigger splash and set an example for the federal workforce. So that those are two factors we see really playing into OSC's focus in the last couple of years. And who is it that makes decisions in OSC? I mean, there is a head Henry Kerner, who seems to be a very fair-minded individual from, from my discussions with him over the years, and how do they make their findings? He is the special counsel head of the agency, and the agency itself is uh, organized into four units. There's a disclosure unit where people can go to and say, I have um, information about waste, fraud, or abuse that should be investigated, kind of like an IG function, and that disclosure unit will farm out those investigations back to agency investigators. There's an alternative dispute resolution unit, which seeks to mediate and resolve complaints um, without prosecution. There's an investigations and prosecution division, and that's where 
the agency goes into uh, other federal agencies to conduct investigations. When IPD shows up at your front door, that's when you know OSC is investigating. And they have their own office chiefs who make decisions about what to investigate and where to allocate resources. Otherwise, OSC is largely comprised of attorneys. These are people with law degrees, people who know how to conduct investigations, conduct interviews, and conduct legal analysis. All right. And uh, we should also point out that Shaw Bransford has almost a special course in this and other matters for federal agency managers. That's right. Coming up on November 2nd at 11 a.m., I'll be delivering a webinar all about OSC investigations. And the, the audience is federal managers, offices, general counsel, human resources officials. And we're going to talk for an hour about OSC and demystifying its powers and their work practices in federal agencies. And that's going to be a part of SBR Learning Academy. We're building out uh, modules to educate the federal workforce on their rights, how to defend themselves, how to defend their agencies. And that's SBR Academy. James Heelan is senior attorney at the law firm Shaw, Bransford & Roth. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks again, Tom. It's good to be here. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One 
I don't think I still am reflecting on it. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it. Right, the seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day jobs, and he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? 
Yeah, it's it's interesting today too. Working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all, and a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? And I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're 
passionate about the environment or national security or healthcare, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.